0: Welcome to the Virginia Politics and Government Podcast. This is your host, Jeff Thomas. Today, our distinguished guest is Brent Tarter, a founding editor of the Dictionary of Virginia Biography and the author of The Grandees of Government, The Origins and Persistence of Undemocratic Politics in Virginia. Thank you so much for coming.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me.
0: Brent, why did you write The Grandees of Government?
1: I've been studying Virginia's history for more than 45 years now, and one or two persistent questions have always haunted me in the back of my mind. The main one, I think, is why has Virginia's politics and government been so resistant to change? I've been noticing this for a long time, and every time I went to the library to do some research on one subject or another, I encountered this resistance to change, going all the way back to the early part of the colonial period and coming all the way up until the modern time. I've been lucky in that my professional career as a historian has allowed me to do research in all decades of Virginia's history and to become familiar with all of the major scholarship on aspects of Virginia history. After about 40 years, I realized I might have tumbled to the answer. The answer is the grandees of government, the origins and persistence of undemocratic politics in Virginia. The subtitle tells you what the book is about. The title tells you who done it, the people in charge.
0: You mentioned the subtitle. If Virginia is not a democracy, then what is it?
1: Virginians of the post-Civil War period have claimed to be democratic, but they've not been. If anything, Virginia's government has been Republican with a little r, by which we mean representative. But it's not been even a very good representative government in that it only just represented the elite classes. In the colonial period and in the early years of the 19th century, it was basically a government of the tobacco planters, by the tobacco planters, and for the tobacco planters. Black people had no say-so women had no say so. Most white men had no say so. You had to be a property owner even to be able to vote. That lasted up until the 1850s, by which time Virginia was no longer dependent so much on tobacco but on railroads and large-scale commercial agriculture and manufacturing and banking, just like everybody else. And by the middle of the 19th century, Virginia was becoming a government of the businessmen, by the businessmen, and for the businessmen. Those people were the ones who were represented in the legislature, who were represented in the city hall, who were represented in the governor's office. They looked out after their own interests, as we all would. Their interests included control of the labor force, control of taxation, control of the voting booth. That's where you get the undemocratic politics. It started from the very beginning in an extremely hierarchical, late Elizabethan culture. That's what we had at the beginning of the settlement of Virginia in 167. The people who were in charge then made sure they stayed in charge. They were the ones who controlled the tobacco trade. They became the wealthy ones. They therefore became the political leaders, which enabled them to stay wealthy.
0: It's unusual to see a top scholar with such learned credentials, including this book published by UVA Press, express the idea that Virginia politicians are anything except flawed yet worthy descendants of Thomas Jefferson. What's been the reaction to your book?
1: Generally in the scholarly community, quite favorable. I've got some very nice reviews in the professional historical literature. My friends who have read it said they liked it, or if they didn't like it, they didn't say. I've not heard much from other people. My suspicion is that the people who would not like this book probably have not read this book. They probably don't read much serious scholarship. They may be stuck reading celebratory, superficial, popular literature, which is really, in many cases, not very accurate.
0: You seem to argue that the modern revisionism of Douglas Southall Freeman, probably the most venerated Virginia historian, is pernicious, and you reserve your harshest words for him. You write that Freeman's The Spirit of Virginia thereby became a kind of ethnic cleansing of the history and culture of the state. Why is that?
1: I'm not trying to single out Freeman. I also don't venerate anybody. I don't think we ought to be idolaters. Freeman was a good historian. Freeman was a very influential editor of one of the Richmond newspapers for many years. And he wrote a great deal in the popular journal literature about Virginia, which tended to be mostly quite celebratory. He was focusing on elite white male Virginians for the most part. What he wrote about them may have been more or less so, but the way he wrote about them left the impression that he was writing about all Virginia and all Virginians and everybody. In fact, he wasn't. He was writing about the grandees of which he was part of their class. But the fact of the matter is he left out women, he left out us poor white trash, he left out black people, he left out a whole lot of people whose values and experiences and interests were quite different. Although he said, this is what Virginians believe, this is what Virginians are. And he was only just writing about a few of them.
0: What's been the legacy of such history?
1: I think it's been pernicious because it has blinded us about some things in Virginia history that we need to know about. Freeman and some of the other people who wrote in that vein during the 19th and 20th centuries always find the good things in Virginia's history. They venerate democracy and Republican government and gentleman behavior and honesty, and they overlook or sweep aside the pernicious effects of slavery, of racism, of sexism, and a lot of very nasty, vile behavior that has taken place in Virginia's history, leaving a kind of oversweet aftertaste suggesting that this is the way that we ought to do government in, the, in America, when in fact Virginians invented slavery and the law of slavery. Virginians were among the last, Fremont's Virginians, I might as well say, were among the last to adapt themselves to the changes of the 19th century. This infects white people, too. Virginians never granted women, even white women, the right to vote. That got forced on Virginia when other states ratified an amendment to the Constitution in 1920. Virginians have not always been in the lead. There's been a lot about Virginia that's not been admirable. But in order to understand something, you have to look at the good parts and the bad parts both. If you look at only part of the picture, you won't see the whole, and you won't see accurately.
0: History doesn't create controlled experiments for us. Why then, compared to other states, is Virginia so undemocratic?
1: Virginia has a tradition of undemocratic government, and that makes it more difficult for people who want to change that tradition to get any leverage. Only property-owning white men could vote in Virginia until the 19th century, so nobody else had any way of influencing government except by armed revolution, and nobody tried it but once and they lost. During the period between the Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement, the white adult, prosperous male people were still in charge. This is why we had to have a civil rights movement in Virginia at least. It worked through the courts. In some places it worked in the streets, some places it worked in the political theater. In Virginia it worked through the courts because that was the only place anybody had any leverage. Black Virginians had no access to voting booths so therefore they couldn't change the political culture or the political behavior or the laws. It's always struck me as a remarkable coincidence that the civil rights leaders in Virginia were probably the best in the country. Certainly the civil rights lawyers in Virginia were a company of able and determined and bold people unlike in any other state. Moreover, Virginians chiefly mothers and fathers of school children, took the lead and pushed farther and faster in Virginia than any other place to get justice through the courts. They couldn't get it through government. They had to get it through the courts. They ingeniously and deliberately and successfully used white Virginia's laws and courts against white Virginia's legal culture of segregation and discrimination against black people, and they won. That's a remarkable story. That doesn't get the play that it deserves.
0: The horizon of imagination of many politicians, and many Virginians frankly, is constrained by their education and the textbooks that they've read. I know that you have not done a complete study of the current textbooks, but you have done a study of the textbooks in the past. What have the textbooks said about Virginia, and how has it affected people's horizon of imagination?
1: I can't speak about the recent textbooks. The old ones said exactly what I criticized Douglas Southall Freeman for saying, that this was a good place, that slavery was not bad. One of them even described slavery as an early form of Social Security. Well, that's just rubbish. That's in fact insulting. That's in fact appalling. The early textbooks put a high gloss on the good parts of Virginia history and either left out or made up falsehoods about the bad parts. That means that you could easily adopt a kind of mythological view of Virginia as always a great place. The virtues of Washington had always existed even before Washington and always existed after Washington, and that was Virginia. It leaves out the reasons for Nat Turner's rebellion or Gabriel's conspiracy or Bacon's rebellion of 1676 or the fact that thousands and thousands and thousands of black Virginians left the state early in the 20th century, rather than try to continue to live under the extremely discriminatory and humiliating laws that the grandees passed in the General Assembly to enforce segregation and inequality.
0: You describe an episode in the middle of last century in which a legislative committee through the Secretary of Education put together a committee to write several new textbooks.
1: Actually, it was one of those books that described slavery as an early form of social security. At the end of the 1940s, somebody did a study and found out that people in Virginia schools, people entering Virginia colleges, were woefully ignorant of Virginia and American history, so they blamed the textbook. And the state created a commission, hired some good historians, hired some good classroom teachers to do a series of books on Virginia and American history and geography. Part of the problem with this is that it was a commission mostly of politicians who hired the historians and edited the books and made them rewrite parts of the book and cut out parts of the book so that it presented only a superficial, very flattering history of Virginia those are the books that people who came of age in the 1950s and 60s read. They learned what I think is an antiseptic, misleading version of Virginia's history. It's the same version that people had been writing for decades. If you go back and look at history textbooks that were published, say, in the 1890s through about World War I, they stop in 1861 or 1865, as if that's the end of everything, as if Good old Slavery Virginia was gone, and there's nothing else to look at or admire. The books from the 1950s and 60s were just as bad, but they took it a little bit farther. They certainly did not deal honestly or at all with the Civil Rights Movement or the reasons why the Civil Rights Movement was necessary.
0: It's often said that history is written by the victors, yet you note that Southern Confederate apologists had won the history by around 1900. What explains their success?
1: Nobody else cared for one thing. They were very energetic. Everybody in the 1860s knew that slavery was the reason for the Civil War, for a whole lot of ways it infected American politics, American government, the American economy. But after the Civil War, when slavery was abolished and discredited, people who had defended slavery before the war or fought on the Confederate side during the war tried to explain secession and rebellion without admitting that they were fighting to preserve slavery. That's when you find the first of this talk about secession was a consequence of preserving state rights. Well, in the first thing, there was no state right in danger in 1861. The only right was the right of owners of slaves to take slave properties into the Western territories and create new slave states. That was in danger. It wasn't necessarily concluded then. But after the war, when slavery was discredited, people had to explain that they didn't do treason, they didn't support slavery, they were supporting states' rights and the rights of southern white people. to own slaves was what the to. Those people were very energetic, and they were very good writers. They were very good propagandists. People in the North stopped arguing those questions by the 1880s. There's not a countervailing northern literature. And so the very good writers who celebrated the South sort of swept the field of historical and popular scholarship. The popular literature on this is more important than the scholarly literature because it got read more then and now. That's just the way things are. There was a strong anti-slavery sentiment in the northern states by the end of the Civil War. It promoted acts of Congress, the Civil Rights Acts of the 1860s and 1870s that were very, very important. But that enthusiasm in the North for protecting the rights of black people in the South dissipated during the 1880s and 90s. Northern people cared less about those people than they had before. They didn't write about the Civil War in the same way that ex-Confederates wrote about the Civil War. Ex-Confederates wrote about heroism, about sacrifice, and about unity, all of which is quite true, but it diverted attention away from the fact that they were making war against the United States. That literature was so good and so abundant and so persuasive and without much opposition that about the beginning of the 20th century, most people had come around to believing that the war wasn't about slavery. It was about states' rights, and that, therefore, southerners hadn't been treasonous.
0: The famous quote says that he who controls the past controls the present and the future, if I'm paraphrasing. The following statues are located on Capitol Square. The George Washington Equestrian Statue, which also contains likenesses of many of the founding fathers. Stonewall Jackson and William Extra Billy Smith, both Confederate generals. Hunter McGuire, a prominent doctor and and confederate surgeon. Edgar Allan Poe, the writer. Harry Byrd, the segregationist leader of massive resistance. And a civil rights memorial. Do you think that these memorials accurately reflect our history?
1: No, but we're getting better. Edgar Allan Poe is unique. He doesn't represent anybody but himself. I wish we had a better quality statue of him, because he's one of the great people of all time. The civil rights monument is quite new. It's been there less than a decade. All the others are old grandees. We now have a monument in the works to honor and celebrate the contributions of women to Virginia's history. We still don't have that. There's also one in the works to honor American Indians from this state, which is also overdue. In the 1920s, the Grandees literally made it illegal to be an Indian. You were either a white person or what they called a colored person. They classified all the Indians as colored and made them subject to all the discriminatory Jim Crow laws. We're finally getting past that.
0: One of the criticisms offered for the proposed women's and American Indian memorials are that it delves into identity politics. Do you believe that?
1: I'm not sure what people
0: mean by identity
1: politics. If you understand your past imperfectly, you're cheating yourself.
0: It's easy to view history as inexorable and events in hindsight as veritably preordained. However, that's not the case. You describe how, in the Virginia Constitutional Convention beginning in February of 1861, only about one in four delegates wanted to secede. How did a convention where there was little support for secession vote two months later to leave the Union?
1: That's an excellent question because it raises something related to your question about the Confederates having won the history even though they lost the war. If you go out on the street and you ask somebody about the reason for secession, they're likely to say Abraham Lincoln was elected and the southern states seceded for whatever reason. But in fact, that's not so. By April of 1861, a majority of all the slave states were in the Union. A majority of all the enslaved people were in the Union. A majority of all of the people who owned slaves were in the Union. It was only the Gulf state and South Carolina that seceded in the early part of 1861. North Carolina, Virginia, Tennessee, Kentucky, Arkansas, Missouri, Maryland, Delaware. In Virginia, they did something that nobody else did. In the Virginia Convention, which we call the secession convention because it ultimately did vote to secede, but it shouldn't be called that. It was a union convention for two months. The other southern state conventions voted to leave the union. The Virginia Convention tried to save the union. They debated and argued at interminable length for two months about how to find compromise that would be acceptable to the United States and would at the same time bring the seceded states back into the Union. Virginians were opposed to secession. Most white Virginians were opposed to secession. Two-thirds to three-quarters of the people elected to the convention were opposed to secession because it was bad policy. Many of them thought it was unconstitutional. Many of them thought it would lead to a bloody civil war. Many of them thought that Virginia, as a slave state, was better off in the Union than out of the Union. This is another thing that's overlooked about the secession crisis, particularly in Virginia and the other border states. Virginians wanted, the white Virginians, wanted to keep Virginia in the Union. They wanted to keep the slave state of Virginia in the Union. They wanted to keep the slave states in the Union. They were not opposed to slavery. There's not a single word in the four fat volumes of the published debates in that convention critical of slavery. Not one word. What you do get, is weeks of debate about how the Constitution of the United States protects slavery in Virginia, with various tax codes and the various guarantees of slavery, and particularly the requirement in the Constitution that states return escaped laborers to their owners. So one of the delegates in the Virginia Convention said if Virginia secedes, that brings the Canadian border down to the Potomac River. Our slaves will all run away. So they were trying to protect slavery in Virginia, and they were trying to protect Virginia as a slave state in the Union, and they did until after Fort Sumter. Then what happened? Well, a war started. Here you are in Virginia on the East coast, right between the lower south northern state and the upper south southern states. Where is the war going to be fought? They had no choice. This is a question not of political economy or political philosophy or political tactics or slavery. By late in April 1861, it's a question. Whose side are you going to be on? Who are you going to shoot at? Who is going to shoot at you? Then the Virginia Convention voted to secede, but only by a margin of, I think it was 88 to 55. It's not overwhelming even then.
0: I think it's easy to understand how people who were young and who fought in the war on the Confederate side, when they grew up, there was a reason for this revisionist history or when their fathers were in the war. Why has it continued to 2017?
1: Because people are still reading the same old, books or recycled versions of the same old books. It's interesting that you mentioned young and old people. At the time the Civil War began, younger people were much more enthusiastic about secession than war than older people were. And after the war, I think it's safe to say that in many instances, women were harder to reconstruct than men. Their men had let them down by losing. The women were really angry about it and really annoyed very very difficult to get over it. It's easy to see how those mothers and fathers, fathers and grandfathers, raised a whole generation of people who resented everything that happened in the 1860s and who wrote books and songs and poems and textbooks for decades that absolved their ancestors of any blame for what they regarded as disastrous destruction of the Virginia culture and society that had existed on the basis of slavery.
0: Because of the patriarchy of Virginia society and American society, do you think that women felt a natural affinity for the underclass in some respects?
1: Well, which women? That's hard to say, because not all women are the same any more than all men are the same. There is an interesting epoch right around the beginning of the 20th century, 1890s up to about World War I, in which you see elite white women and prosperous, well-educated black women cooperating in the interest of improving the public schools and public health. That's an unusual circumstance in Virginia. White men and black men did not do that. Some white women and some black women did. The reason is that they were interested in their children. Children keep getting left out of our discussions and considerations about motives for political actions. Children are about the most important thing to any family, and people look out for their children. Once Virginia finally got a public school system after 1870, that brought white people and black people together, poor white people and poor black people together. For the first time, their children had access to schools, and they were insistent that the politicians and the legislature provide enough money that they would be good schools for their children. So you get black and white male cooperation on behalf of schools and children in the 1880s, and you get black and white female cooperation at the beginning of the 20th century for exactly the same purpose. But that doesn't mean that all women agreed with one another on other things. There is a very nasty episode in the 19-teens in Virginia and in most other southern states where large organizations of white women opposed the federal amendment to grant women the right to vote for fear that if they begin to tamper with voting restrictions, black people might begin voting again. And so rather than open that door, they made sure the door on themselves stayed closed. And in Virginia, the legislature never granted women the right to vote.
0: Why is there racism?
1: It's always been racism, as far as I know, everywhere, every time. People are uneasy with difference. People are uneasy being regarded as inferior. People don't get uneasy about being regarded as as superior. Racism in our American culture has frequently been tied back to slavery. It may be stronger or weaker in other places at other times, but because slavery in Virginia was racial in its basis and people advocated slavery of inferior beings, and because you could walk out under the street of your town or you could walk out onto your farm and you could see white people in control of their lives and black people not in control of their lives. That reinforced what might be a natural tendency of people to view the world in terms of themselves, whom you protect, and others who are threatening.
0: How would you characterize your work? Are you a populist, a academic, a realist, or revisionist?
1: I think everybody is probably all of those in greater or lesser degrees. My historical scholarship has been aimed at trying to answer questions. Why did you have a convention in Virginia in 1861 that was so opposed to secession and suddenly turned on its head? Why has the governmental processes and the political leaders in this state been so resistant to change consistently for such a long amount of time? I'm trying to answer the question, I'm not trying to write a political or legal brief on behalf of one way of interpreting history. There are people who say that I write in the old progressive mode of history where economic motives came to the fore, and I can see how you could see that. Money is important, property is important, taxation is important, that's one of the ways people define themselves. Particularly if you read old tax laws, you can see very clearly what mattered to the people who wrote them. And you can see how they discriminate against the people who didn't. Well, maybe that's a liberal position. I don't know. Nowhere in this book have I used the words liberal or conservative. There are no good definitions of those words. They've been used in miscellaneous ways. They were not used at all in many parts of Virginia's whole history, and they are therefore misleading, because if you label somebody a conservative at one period, people who don't know much about that period may just naturally and wrongly assume that you're talking about what would mean if we say a conservative to date. I try to do good scholarship. I try to approach things objectively and answer questions that, to me, seem to be interesting and important.
0: Do you see yourself as a counterpoint to Douglas Freeman and people like him?
1: I wouldn't want to put it that way. He's dead and can't defend himself. We all build on the work of people who came before us. Freeman did. I did. We all do. We learn from people we disagree with. Or we learn from scholars who interpreted things differently than we did. It's not as if we're in a battle with one another. Some historians act like it, but I try not to. We're basically just trying to understand.
0: What's the main audience for your book?
1: I suspect that the main audience is going to be a scholarly one or people like yourself who are deeply interested in current politics or perhaps people who are interested in how teachers learn to teach about Virginia history. I tried to write it for a fairly general audience, but it's not a popular book in the sense of being a fast-moving potboiler. We're talking about 400 years of change in continuity in a society and culture that has changed in spite of its government in many ways. It is a book that is full of footnotes. It is a book that deals with serious and important matters in a serious and important way. Somebody else may look at all the same evidence and come up with a completely different interpretation, and that would be interesting.
0: What would you say to more or less lay people, college-educated folks who read the Richmond Times-Dispatch and not many books, and certainly not many scholarly books, are there sources out there that you could recommend in order to understand Virginia?
1: Well, nobody should base an interpretation on just one book, one newspaper one television program, or even one blog. Sample different varieties. People have different viewpoints. I try to read editorials by people on this, that, and the other side of questions because nearly everybody has something interesting to contribute. It doesn't mean that I'm always convinced, but I hate to be caught overlooking a fact of history or an aspect of an argument about current politics. If you listen just to one person, you're not really thinking, you're just picking up. You know, there's an old saying that if two people always agree, at least one of them is not thinking. Don't be either one of those.
0: In the week after the 2016 presidential election, President Obama amended Dr. King's famous quote a little by saying, Progress doesn't follow a straight line. It zigs and zags, and sometimes it moves forward, and sometimes it moves backward, or moves sideways. I'm a firm believer, he said. It ultimately moves in the direction of justice and more prosperity and more freedom and more inclusion. Do you think that the moral arc of the universe ultimately bends towards progress?
1: I hope it does. I don't know that it does. We go forward and backward and we take side trips. It would be nice if there were a long narrative arc that proved that things were getting better. I deal with this a little in the Grandees of Government book because there are things that have got better, and it's not inexorable, and it's not inevitable, and it didn't happen by itself. People had to make things change. But there are things that have not got better, and there are definitely times where the historical processes have gone retrograde and made things worse. So I'm gonna be an agnostic on that question.
0: You note that Harry Bird's machine was honest, but as our state's political journalists now indicate, that's no longer the case when did this change when was this retrograde movement and why
1: well this is an interesting question harry bird and his organization in the first half of the 20th century prided themselves on not stealing money from the public treasury i mean that was a time where there was a lot of graft and a lot of thievery and a lot of corruption in some other places particularly in some of the large urban areas of the country I argue that Harry Democrats did not need to steal money because they had already stolen something a lot more valuable. They'd stolen democracy. They'd stolen the government. They were able to shape public policies in ways that worked to the advantage of their economic and social and cultural interests. Now, I'm sure, in fact, I know that there were aspects of that political machine that lent themselves to low-grade petty corruption, particularly at the local level, and that some of the public policies that the legislature adopted and pursued could be viewed as corrupt because they worked to the advantage of the grandee's class and to the disadvantage of other people. Politicians have always taken contributions from their supporters or people who wanted them to support them. That's not new now or then so in that respect i don't know how much has changed number of dollars has changed partly because of inflation and partly because of other things i don't know that that changes the morality
0: brent we're almost out of time what can listeners do to help
1: i think you must be informed i think you must pay attention read widely listen widely about political opinions people's beliefs about politics public policy and take part I don't know that we're going to be able to change the moral arc of the universe, and we certainly can't individually, but you have a responsibility yourself, family, your children, your community, your state, and your country to act wisely, base your opinions on considered thought, not on one newspaper or one blog or one other person's ideas. That's the only way that you'll be able to do your part. It's a democracy, it's supposed to be, a Republican government representative supposed to be. We're supposed to have say we're the boss.
0: Brent Tarter, I'm so thankful that you wrote The Grandees of Government, The Origins and Persistence of Undemocratic Politics in Virginia. Understanding our history with reason instead of myth making is vital for our state to realize its full potential. Thank you so much for being here.
1: My pleasure.